0: You are listening to AI Ready Healthcare. I'm Anirban Mukhopadhyay, your host from Thieu Darmstadt, Germany. The purpose of AI Ready Healthcare is to connect the advanced technological knowledge of Mekai society to different stakeholders, such as clinicians, industry personnel, regulatory personnel, to name a few. You can expect Deep meaningful conversations about bringing AI into the real clinical routine. Opinion belongs to whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready. In terms of computational assistance in clinical procedures, radiotherapy planning is at the forefront. Yet, there is very little AI assistance so far in the products that are currently available. Listen to Professor Nikos Paragios about how he is changing that entire field and the paradigm in this episode of AI Ready Healthcare. So, welcome to the seventh season of AI Ready Healthcare. It's a sunny day here in Darmstadt with a little bit of cloud in between. I'm your host on uh, together with Henry. It's a pleasure and honor to have with us Professor Nikos Paragios. Nikos is a senior researcher from the computer vision and medical imaging community. He's a professor of computer science and applied maths at the Trelis and also an affiliated scientific leader at INRIA. If that's not enough of responsibility, he is also serving as the editor-in-chief of Computer Vision and Image Understanding Journal. And unlike a lot of academics, Anikos is very successful in balancing academia and industry. Recently, he is the CEO of Therapehnesia. So we will hear a lot of these research and how things happened in across his career in today's podcast. But first of all, welcome to the podcast, Nikos.
1: Hello, Ariban. Hello, Herde. I will also, uh, would also like to thank you for this kind of invitation. We don't have a sunny day here in Paris, but it's a good day. It doesn't rain and it's not that cold. So it's a pleasure to be part of this podcast.
2: Hi, Nikos. And welcome to the podcast, also from my side. And also a warm welcome to the audience today. So, yeah, it's great to have a guest like you in today's session, which is quite unusual, someone who is successful both in the academic world as well as in the, in the industrial world. So that brings me already to the very first question of today's session, which is um, yeah, our typical format about the becoming. So can you tell us a bit about how you became the researcher slash uh, CEO that you currently are? Okay, so as you can see from the color of my hair, I'm not that young. So that
1: means that I have already a long academic career. Little A uh, little bit information about who I am and how I end up uh, doing both academia and science. Actually, uh, I started at a very, year, very young age uh, working in the field of computer vision. This goes back from the 90s when we had 350 people in conferences like CVPR and ICCV. For the record, today we have 15,000 people. Uh, So then uh, I I started my uh, my career as an industrial researcher. I worked for Siemens Corporate Research in Princeton, New Jersey, almost two decades ago. And there I was in the intersection between academia and uh, industry. Uh, Siemens was a place where actually you could innovate without having too much pressure on products. Then I, I moved back to academia for almost 15 years between 2004 and 2019. Uh, where actually I was a full-time academic professor again, working in the fields of computer vision and machine learning. Uh, as an academic, your primary objective is to actually publish papers, and you have to do that well. Which means that you have to publish a lot. Publishing a lot means that you have a lot of graduate students. If you want to have a lot of graduate students, then it means that you have to need to have a lot of grads, because that's the only way you can, you know, pay graduate students. And at some point, I think I mean, it's publishing whether you're publishing 10 or 20 or 30 CVBR papers or ICCB, it makes little little difference in your career. I mean, once I think as an academic, once your slope has been defined, then uh, whatever you do, you still you know you have established yourself to whatever you have established yourself. The only thing you can do is you can reproduce uh, what you were doing before, which is looking for grants, pushing research, publish papers, which I think it's a great achievement because I think you know what that's what makes the difference today: papers, new academic, new scientific ideas. Will move the you know the boundaries of what we use in the real world. However, you don't have an immediate impact in the society, other than educating people, which is also great. So uh, I was lucky enough to work on fields which are in the intersection between applied science and theoretical science. That means the 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 background behind computer vision, machine learning, medical image analysis and mathematics and optimization, and the applications that actually you can address are numerous and they have a huge impact. So at some point of, of my midlife crisis, because I think all of us go through that, I asked the question, uh, what is the best thing I can do for the next 10 years? I mean, I was very comfortable on my academic position. I was promoted on very young age as a distinguished professor, and I got to live my rest of my academic career on this, on this you know, on this trajectory. And I said, I should, I mean, see if I want to do something different. And I think people, they should actually challenge constantly themselves. We should not get used to, you know, what we have accomplished. You always have to go for something more. And then I had the chance to, to discuss with the university and then they have a transfer office where they offered me the possibility to hire someone which could eventually look on the work that we have been doing in the laboratory how this can be used in the real, the real world. In the, from the very beginning, my intention was to go on the health sites. So, thanks to that, there was somebody that spent almost a year and a half looking into what we have done, talking to hospitals, and this helped us to identify domains where actually our technology that we have developed in the lab could have an impact in the society, and there were three of them. The first one was radiology, and this is what most of the companies are doing today, how you can use machine learning, artificial intelligence to do diagnosis. This is a very crowded domain, which actually helps people but you are replicating what humans do. So it's great, but still you are actually somehow standardized, automatized things. The second domain was robotic surgery, how you can actually use machine learning, computer vision to navigate and then use robots for surgery. And the third one was radiation therapy. So among these three domains, the most challenging one, was radiation therapy, because it's in the section between physics, mathematics, computer science, and AI, and I made the mistake to go with it. So that's how I end up at the same time being an academic industry. It was because I wanted to actually have an impact that goes beyond scientific papers, goes beyond publishing papers, goes beyond educating people, and have, you know, uh, something that you can see on the society.
0: Yeah, that's really, I would say, a very compact answer to your three-decade-long career uh, and doing so many things. what was really interesting for from, from you is the passion you have for the growth mindset and how that really leads you to unusual places. That's an amazing thing. One thing I was thinking of is that, well, I'm not so young as well. And I come from, like I started my PhD in a pre-deep learning era and I read papers of active contours and level set methods. So the Old world paper of yours, which I don't know, most of our younger listeners will give a shrug. What are you talking about? <laughs> but th- those are the things with which I often relate to your research. And then you had to make this transition into deep learning, right? Because this is the reality. This is the best pattern recognition framework that we currently have. So for you, what was the biggest thing that you sort of had to quote unquote unlearn to? Make sure you are a, like you are successful in this transition.
1: Yeah, so I mean, if we look on the, I think this is not only the case for computer vision, but generally in the scientific domain. I think we have usually what we call trends. That means you know you have a scientific trend that usually has a duration that goes from five to ten years. You are not as young as myself. I mean, so I think you're a little bit younger. But for example, back in '90s, at the beginning of '90s, everything was about 3D geometry. I mean, it's the whole computer vision was about geometry. If you look late 90s and, you know, I would say mid 2000, then people were looking on variation methods, on level sets, on active contours and all these things. Then what came in actually was uh, graph cuts, and then what came in was descriptors, and then we have deep learning. So if you look on what's happening on the whole field, I think this is every five to seven years, you have a new trend that is dominating the field. And this is not only for computer vision, this is in general for most of the applied domains. I'm not talking about theoretical science, theoretical mathematics this is more stable. So the domain itself is changing and the reason why the domain is changing is there are several. First of all, I mean today we're lacking a computing power that we couldn't have imagined 20 years back. I mean if I take the code I wrote as a PhD student, I remember it used to take something like three minutes to run on a small image. Now if I use the same code on a very powerful computer it's not going to be three minutes anymore. It's going to be five or ten seconds without changing any line of code. And I think at that time, people were writing better code because they didn't have resources. So now we don't care. So we waste, you know, resources because of the code. So that's the first thing. So now we have more computing power. Okay. The second thing we have now is more data. Whether you are looking at the computer vision field, whether you're looking at the medical image field, you still have more data. And this makes methods like deep learning to be, you know, the most appropriate to address problems. But we still have problems where you don't have a lot of data. Um, it's, if you look on the rare disease if you look on drug development because we are working a lot with companies that you know are looking into drug development a typical number of cases participating in clinical trial will be 20 on the phase one, 50 on the phase two and then maybe 500 on phase three. So there and I think that's a message that actually I would like to pass to all your audience. I think deep learning is a great tool it allows you to do things that we couldn't even imagine 20 years ago or 10 years ago, or five years ago. But what is also very important is that actually, you grasp background ground knowledge that is not only dedicated to the current trend. And this is something that people had to do in the past as well. As I said before, there were still, even when, you know, active contours and level sets were dominating the field, there were still people doing other things. When graph cuts dominating the field, they were still doing it. So you have to follow the trend. That's very important. You have to actually understand what is the current trend and what are the opportunities that are given from the scientific advances in other fields. This is what you call repositioning, but you also need to actually maintain as much as you can a broad knowledge that goes beyond what is the current trend. Because somebody that is an expert on active contours, once active contours are not anymore the main trend, then you will be expert of nothing. Somebody that was an expert on graph theory, once graph theory is over, then you'll be expert of nothing. And this is going to happen also for deep learning. There's going to be something else that will come, that will be something different that will do this. Is the nature of science that means we prove things. So it's almost certain that there will be some new technology that will be even more powerful than deep learning. And this is what we see today, for example, when you look on conversational models. So there was always a progress. So it's very important that you actually follow up the progress and follow up with the trends. But I still, as a professor, what I'm saying to all my students, do not focus only on understanding what is the current trend, because the current trend is today, here, but it's not most likely it's going to be there tomorrow. Try to actually at least as a student, get as broad knowledge as you can on the basics. What is the basics? Optimization, statistics, mathematics, because this is going to be used whatever is the new trend. So this is the only advice I can give. Look on the thread, do not go opposite to the thread, but try to grasp as much broad knowledge as you can, because it's going to be useful in the future.
2: Mm, That's actually very, very good advice. And I think a perfect example of this paradigm is your work at uh, Mm therapanacea, the radiotherapy planning that we have been talking about earlier. And that's what I would like to talk a bit about for now. So can you maybe give us a little bit of background for our listeners on radiotherapy planning in general? What are the challenges in that field? What solutions you developed to address those challenges? Sure. First, I will talk a little bit about oncology.
1: Today, uh, we estimate by 2030 that there will be 30 new million cases with cancer uh, worldwide, and there will be 50 million people, which, according to the current standards of treatment, unfortunately, they will not survive. So it's actually the second major uh, cause of mortality worldwide, and this keep increasing because of the fact that you know, populating population is aging, we live longer, and when you live longer, then the probability of having uh, for being diagnosed with cancer is higher. The way we treat cancer patients today, there are three dominant uh, paths. The most common or the most, uh, the one that is adopted first, if it's feasible is surgery. So when you have a well-defined tumor, you take the patient to the operation room, you cut the tumor, things are okay. So this is something that is used for specific type of tumors. It's not that frequent and require expertise. You cannot go to a small city in France, in Germany, or in Greece, and expect to have a, you know, this clearly neuro-oncology surgeon that will be able to remove tumors. That's the first way. The second way of treating cancer today is uh, radiotherapy. It concerns about 50 to 60% of all cancer patients. It's the most frequent treatment and the most effective. And the third one is chemotherapy, which I will not focus on. So the way radiotherapy works is a very basic idea. What you would like to do is you like actually to accelerate cancer, cells, death. So what you're going to do is you're going to target them with radiation. It means that as you, it's the same like principle like an X-ray. When you are doing x-ray, you are sending rays and you are measuring the signal that comes to the receptor. What radiation therapy will do is something different. Instead of sending signal to the whole body, it will focus on where the tumor is. And then we're going to send a lot of radiation to the tumor. This radiation will kill the tumor and then actually will not radiate the rest of the body. The problem is the radiation is like, you know, using a, a bullet. So whatever is before and whatever is after the tumor will also get irradiated, right? So the objective of radiation therapy is to be able to determine what the tumor is and define what is the best possible trajectory of the race. So then the the tumor gets the maximum dose that is necessary. So you eliminate the cancer cells, but at the same time, you're not destroying everything because if you irradiate the whole body, you kill the tumor, but you also kill the patient as well. The problem of radiation therapy is that there was no progress in terms of ability of people to do what we call today adaptive treatment, that means to take into account how treatment is progressing during the past 20 years. So people, they were focusing on building better hardware. So now we have machines that are very powerful. They have machines that are ultra precise, but the machines, they do not scale by being able to adjust the treatment the way the patient is evolving over time. Because what you have to keep in mind is that somebody that's treated for cancer, usually treatment can go from four to actually 16 weeks. In these 16 weeks, usually you don't eat well, you most likely are going to lose weight, and most likely some of the organs will change geometry because of the radiation. So our ambition was to do what we call adaptive treatment for everybody. That means develop tools that first of all, would propagate best practices to everybody. In Germany, you have a hospital which is called Sarité, Berlin, which is a very well known hospital for cancer oncology. In France, you have someone that's called gustave Roussy, which is also very well known. In the United States, you have a, something, a hospital called MD Anderson. The problem is that in France, in Germany, you have 199 other oncology centers, but they are not as prestigious as Gustav See, They don't have the same resources as Gustav See, And they don't have an expert for every indication as Gustav See or Sarite or MD Anders. So and these centers, they're in small cities with people that are doing their best. But, you know, if you ask somebody to be an expert on an area of mathematics, even if you have a bright person, there is no way you can specialize yourself on everything. So our first ambition is to take best practices and propagate them to every center. How you can do that is by learning methods from data. The advantage of radiation oncology is that you have to preserve the data of every patient for up to 10 years, because most likely there is a probability of what we call relapse. So the same patient will come back with a secondary tumor after the treatment. So today we have data that allow us to see how patients were treated and what was outcome which is unique in the field of medicine. And this data is what we call curated because you have everything. You have the CT scan of the patient, you have the plan of the way the patient was treated, you have the tumor delineation, you have the organs at least, you have the dose, you have everything. So our first condition is standardization. Can we learn from best practices and then propagate our practices to everybody? And that's what at the very beginning we focused. Today we have a number of products that actually reduce human involvement So instead of having the human doing the job, and that's where you get a lot of discrepancies, the software, which was trained by data coming from best practices, is doing the job. And the role of the human is maybe to correct minor things or verify whether things are done. And this software is running on hostocracy, is running on sanity, but it's also running in a very small hospital in Romania, or in a very small hospital in Greece, or even in a very small hospital in Australia. That's the first objective. Standardization of treatment. This is essential because radiation therapy works, but the main challenge of radiation therapy is to reduce side effects. And side effects come from the fact that we don't treat properly the patients. The second objective of the company is to go beyond what we are doing today. Today, the principle is that the tumor doesn't change. That means that when we do something, we plan something at the very beginning, and we because we don't know how to do it, we do not make any assumption on whether tumor will shrink, whether anatomy will change. And we keep it the same way because we don't have the tools. We like to make what we call adaptive therapy available to everybody. What does it mean, adaptive therapy? Adaptive therapy means that on the basis of the imaging that we have on every session, to be able to adjust the treatment. So we reduce the toxicity of the treatment and we always focus on the treatment. That's the second objective. But our ultimate objective is to go beyond the single paradigm, the current paradigm of today. Today, the principle of radiation therapy is one tumor, one dose. However, what we know is that Tumor is very heterogeneous. There are parts of the tumor that are very aggressive. There are parts of the tumor that are less aggressive. And there are parts of the tumors that have been go through necrosis. So it means that they are dead. You don't need to irradiate them. So this is the ultimate objective, is to do what we call local dose control. That means focus going from the macro level, which is one tumor, one dose, to what I call a micro level, which is focusing on where the tumor is aggressive and adjusting the dose locally. In order to do that, we need to put together the expertise coming from different fields. That's the body of radiation. Therapy. You need imaging. When we're talking about imaging, we're talking about machine learning, artificial intelligence, standard optimization. You need physics. When the rays had to interact with tissue, it's not the same interaction whether you go through tissue or going through bones. So there is a huge part of physics. You need optimization because the accelerator with radiation therapy machine can do a very complex trajectory. And your objective is to choose what is the best trajectory. So you end up delivering the best treatment. And you need computer science, because all these things that are in the software, which has to be regulated, has to be certified, because we are treating people. And the impact of the software is very important. If Your software that does, does not do the job, you may have people that are not irradiated properly, which means that are the dose of the tumor, and they will have a metastasis. They are overdosed in tumor or another organism will have life loss and effects. So it's a great domain, interdisciplinary, where you have a huge
2: Yeah, really sounds like uh, a great and also challenging field uh, to work in Um, challenging field with so much complexity and so many different factors that also come with a certain amount of uncertainties, uh, so to say. So uh, at which points um, do you employ artificial intelligence or methods, computational methods that you could classify as artificial intelligence in that process? Okay, so first today there is uh, a lot of hype on what is artificial
1: intelligence. So I think you have people that they have an if loop on their code which say if x greater than y, then do something, and they claim that is what is AI. So I mean, I don't like the word AI; I prefer the word machine learning. Okay, because I think it's something more generic and actually allows to move from the hype which everybody's in AI. If we look on the radiation therapy domain, as I said, you have imaging problems and then you have problems like segmentation, for example. You have to segment the tumor. You have to segment the organ centrics. There, for example, deep learning is doing a fantastic job. That means if you have data, then you train this convolutional networks and then you are able to do a fantastic job there. Another domain where actually machine learning is useful is when you try to determine what is the optimal trajectory of the accelerator. As I said before, this is a complex machine. That can take different positions and, and and use on these different positions different levels of radiation therapy, different source magnitudes. So this is something also we can learn from patients. So I will say that all the whole work, the whole chain of radiation therapy can benefit from machine learning. There are areas where actually it's a tool that does the job hundred percent. This is the case for imaging. There are areas where actually machine learning helps you to derive constraints that can help optimization to go to the best possible practices. But I think the whole chain can value machine learning. What is essential as a scientist is actually to focus on what counts. And what counts is solving a problem. If I can solve a problem by using very complex artificial intelligence machine learning methods, but I know that I will solve it, that's what I will adopt. There are other problems with very basic beautiful mathematical theory, like graph theory. When you have to optimize the trajectory, it's a discrete problem. And then there, I mean, you have an infinite number of combinations if you want to try to learn this model. So using models that come from conventional methods, conventional optimization can also help. So I think it's essential, and the message I should pass to whoever participates on, 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 this, on this discussion is that every problem is different, and for every problem, there is a method could be better than something else. We shouldn't follow what is the main thing. We should be able, and that's where it actually allows me to connect with what I was saying before. We need to have broad knowledge. Because today I think we have there we have the tendency of have the people are focusing on one thing and then they try to solve everything with one thing, what they know. This is great if it works, but there are problems where actually this one thing will not work and there you have to choose what is the best. So machine learning is a very powerful tool that allows you either to be just a standalone solution or actually impose constraints on other mathematical tools. So I will say that today machine learning can impact the whole workflow for radiation therapy. Some areas are 100% machine learning driven, some other areas are somehow constrained by machine learning, but this is the answer I could give you to your question.
0: So I have a sort of follow-up based on your answer to the challenges and potentials, also, So, <laughs> so uh, well, basically, I have two questions for you, but let me ask the first question. So when you are talking about the fact that for propagating best practices, you have these different types of data that you really need to standardize, and then only you can see the similarities and differences. So we call our podcast, AI ready, healthcare, simply because of that reason, it's not so much the method itself, but the amount of work that goes behind it to make it AI ready. So in your case, can you give us some insights of the amount of data processing, the data, how to say the data engineering part, cleaning part that you had to go through to make it actually learnable?
1: Okay, so there are two things. First of all, you have variability of the data because of practices. This is not because of people. That means that uh, depending on where you are, for example, you have the recommendations that for the same disease can be different from one continent to another. So there are major, or important differences in how we treat patients in the US and Europe, even if they have the same disease. So the variability does not come only from the scanner. First of all, it comes from the recommendations. The second source of variability actually comes from people. Right? I will uh, tell you something that is frightening, but I think that's important to know. We did a study uh, on, actually, the idea was to look on how people perceive or how physicians define and neck tumors So we, we gathered 30 cases, and we used two of the best hospitals to establish C. and Lyon-Ber. And even more, one of the leading physicians was the one who wrote the standards on how we treat and neck tumors That means that we have two centers. And among these two centers, there was the person that wrote the recommendations worldwide on how we should treat endometriosis. And we asked them to delineate, independently, on the same patients, the tumor that is to be treated. Right? Very simple question. Same patients, same database. Four people: two senior, two junior, one senior from the center. Once we got that, and this is something we published last year, then first we look on the consensus. In medical imaging, there's a very well-defined term which is called the dice coefficient. We take two structures, we superimpose, we measure how they are. The dice coefficient about the tumor was 57%. This is not great, but this is not frightening. What was not what was frightening is that for 18% of the cases, there was zero. That means that out of the 30 patients, 12, if they have been treated to place A, they would have got the dose in the radiation. On an area that has zero overlap with a dose in the radiation at the place B. So that's the third uh, you know, way of variability. The way we do things today is actually the following. The first we have to do is we have to collect multi centric data. So our database consists of actually data that represents machines that people are using for scanning, the machines that people are using for treatment, and the machines that people are using for following up on the treatment delivery, that's the first thing. The second thing we do is we have people that check on whether or not the data that we're gathering follow the guidelines. Because at the end of the story, what counts? There are some guidelines. Some people, they are lazy, some people, they have they believe that they're better than the guidelines, but there are good societies that build these guidelines. So we're gonna to try to verify that the quality of the data is consistent with the guidelines. If it's not the case, we'll take our own experts, which is not people working for us, but these are people in the hospitals, when we're going to ask them to actually do the job according to the guidelines. That's the second part. The third part is to do the training and the validation. And again, there you have to be sure that the training and the validation and the testing set are representative of the clinical practices and that that's also a level. If I have to give you an idea on the number of cases we're using, I would say that there are problems where we have up to 100,000 scans on our servers and we're going to use all of them. And there are very, I would say, practices that we do not necessarily use very often and we may have three to 400 cases. And that will also bring us back to what was we saying before. Depending on the problem you're trying to solve, you have to adjust your technology. But that means the quality of the data is essential. The effectiveness the, of the, the data is essential. And actually being able to verify that the data that you're using for training follows the guidelines is also essential. But today, there is a huge variability across people, there is a huge variability across centers. And that's what standardization should bring in. And that's what the software is very good at doing. Software never gets tired. And software, unless it's non-deterministic, which is not the case anymore, will always produce the same result in the same data. That's where we are.
0: Yeah, that's really somewhat scary what, what you just said in terms of the DICE 57. I mean, those of us who live with DICE, we know how, how crazy it is. But then you said that for quite a certain number of cases, there is total mismatch between what somebody considers tumor. That's crazy. So basically, it's almost feels like for a certain percentage, if we take your previous metaphor, radiation is bullet, you are basically shooting bullets at different parts based on who is the... uh, Yes, exactly. Exactly.
1: Maybe both of them are right. Maybe there are two tumors and the one missed the tumor or the second... Uh, or the none of them is the tumor, but there are two tumors. Maybe one of them is wrong. Maybe uh, the problem is today is that the quality of data we have to actually the. Deline- I mean, today the imaging itself, and the, even if you use contrast agent, there is some kind of subjective analysis of what you are seeing in the image, right? And this is the case for radiologists. It's the case for radiation oncologists. It's the case for any expertise. So you have this human variability that's induced. So I think this connects with your question. I think having reliable training data is essential because if I give this 60 cases to whatever algorithm, what you can expect, even if you have the best architecture, even if you have the best model, still the data quality is essential because at the end, these are data-driven methods and they can only reproduce what is in the data. So I think one message that we should push on this podcast, what really matters is the engineering part, what really matters is the collection of the data, be sure that the data is representative, be sure that the data is properly curated of course, the methods.
0: Yeah, that's quite interesting. And I guess this also sort of comes with the follow-up question I, I was planning to ask. We had already a couple of episodes around the regulatory aspects. Now, if you are thinking of AI software as a medical device, it's mainly radiology products where people now have somewhat of a consensus of the type of validation and stuff that you need to do. But I guess... A.I. software as a medical device for radiation therapy is rather open and there are only very few. So when you are talking about regulatory validation of these softwares, what sort of general framework that you had to go through? Can you give us some insight? Sure.
1: I mean, in general, with the new European and it's also the case of the FDA regulation, this software as a medical device. Uh, usually it belongs to you have the option of choosing or the, of, you know putting your software on what we call three classes. The first is class one, which is for what we call auto certification and it this is for software that you know these are components on your cell phone that help you to do something, but they have zero impact on whatever treatment or whatever you know outcome you're observing. The second class is what we call the class two. Uh, this class has two subclasses. There's a class 2A, which is what we call medium to uh, low to medium risk. And this is usually most of the radiology software. That means there, there you still have the physician in the loop. But for example, you will expect that the software has sufficient number of, you know, uh, there is a sufficient follow-up from different people with different expertise. So even if the software doesn't do the job 100%, you're still going to be able to catch it. So this is a case for 2A. This is what we call low to medium risk for the patient. When you are talking about radiation therapy, actually you the software itself is used to define the treatment. Because of the fact that software is used to define the treatment, what, what will a class to be? To be software means that you are a medium to high risk for the patient. Because the software is going to derive a plan for the treatment that no human is able to verify. The only thing that human can verify is a simulation of another software that is done on your software. So today in radiation therapy, you have no ways or verifying whether a very complex treatment plan will meet the constraints other than using what we call an independent software that will try to do the same job. And then if the results are consistent, that's where well. So where in radiation therapy, we are what we call medium to high risk, and there the validation is very strict. It means you don't have only to worry about the performance of the software, you have to worry about the way you build the software, the way you follow how the software is used, the way the customers complain about your software. The, in general, what, there are three principles that you can use for the validation of software that is either 2A or 2B. The first one, if you have a human equivalent, what you would like to do is you would like to show that either the software does as well as a human or the human, once powered by your software, does better than the human without the software. That's the basic principle. You have a literature, you show that the software meets the average physician, and then you can say that the software can be free. The things become more complex when you have, you don't have a human equivalent. As I said before, today, even if you take the bright mathematician, the brightest mathematician, there is no way you can solve an optimization problem of 20,000 variables where every variable corresponds to something, a 2,000-elements uh, matrix and figure out what's the best combination. So there you want to have to do, you have to do statistical sample. That means that you have to use existing plans. You, you will assume that other people did the job. And you have to show whatever you deliver, at least consistent with the statistical sampling of what was done before to treat the same patients. But again, here we have to be very, very, very cautious, especially when we're targeting medium to high risk healthcare applications. We are treating patients. It's not only about the software. It's about methods that monitor the performance of the software continuously. It's not only the algorithms. Uh, you know the very funny story of, you know, there's... Uh, uh, Ariane six, I think, or seven, which was supposed to take some satellites to the orbit, it failed because there was a division by zero. These are very stupid mistakes. But if you have, for example, dose calculation, where you at some point you have a value that can go very close to zero, and this value, deal, you know, is used as a denominator, you can have a huge impact. So it's not only about building the method; you have to be careful on how you have the method, put in place the right mechanism of controlling what is delivering the method, continuously monitoring the way the method behaves, and being able to deal with these situations, because the problem is that if it ha- even if it happens very, very rarely, if the probability is one out of 10,000, even if it happens one, can have a huge impact to the person. That's where we are. We have to be very careful. It's not only a research problem, it's really a problem that concerns society, and then whoever has to guarantee that with all the resources necessary,
2: or proper code testing, method testing, monitoring continuously on what was mm, Yeah, that actually is not only a problem in terms of regulation, but also in terms of trust into the software from third parties or from, let's say, the stakeholders, basically the physicians. So, uh, what did you learn during deployment of your software solutions to to the clinics regarding the physicians' responses? So, so the first reaction is that we don't believe. That's the first
1: reaction of the physician. So when usually you start telling them that actually I developed something that is going to do as good as you or even better than you. I mean, we don't say that, but we believe that some cases will do better than others. They don't believe it. So usually people, they don't believe it. And, uh And you have actually, I would say, three categories of people. You have the early adopters. These are people that are convinced about technology. Once they grasp the essential, you know, the essential behavior of your, your solution, most likely they will adopt it, they will easily implement it, and then it will go through. And these people, these early adopters, which help to actually penetrate the second class, which are people that do believe that there is some value in these kind of methods, but they are still scared or afraid on how you know these methods will behave, whether or not they will lose control. And there you have to do a proper testing. Usually there we start with something like three to six months testing. We do not charge the, pay, uh, the the customer financially. We explain to them, okay, let's see how it works. Let's see, because most of them believe that they do better than the software. So when we started uh, selling our product, which was back in 2019, the first question that we're getting from everybody, yes, but what kind of data did you use to train your models? Because you know, here we are better. Here we have our properties. So at the very beginning, everybody goes convinced this that actually what was doing inside the hospital was better than anything else that's happening all the time. Now, the question we're getting is what kind of guidelines you So people have shifted because you have the early doctors, then you have the doctors that actually they they, they, they they see the value. And then once you have convinced the doctors, then the rest of them will follow because it's become a commodity. But you have to sell value. You have to sell value. That's very important. I think the question of explainability is something that comes up I think it's something that is important, but I think it's even more important, the performance. of the If you ask a patient whether he would prefer being treated with a algorithm that does 80% the right call, but in 20% doesn't do the right call, but can explain why not, it's not doing the right call or being treated from software that does 90% the right call, I'm sure he will choose a 90%. So I think you have to go progressively, earlier doctors, show value, then Uh, You know the doctors that see value from the earlier doctors that have implemented, and then you have the rest of the people that you follow because it becomes a standard of healthcare.
0: So this is really also interesting because you talked about many things uh, in terms of the adaptation of of a new piece of technology compared to something which was standard for the last decade. You get a lot of pushback, but I guess it also comes to the question about you just mentioned about the billing process, how you charge for such a software. So I guess there was a way of doing things before AI became available, but for when AI became available, there is like, is it per case basis? Is it a monthly subscription model? Is it a yearly subscription model? So what do you think is the best way to actually go about charging for such a software?
1: Okay, so first of all, before going to the charging of the software, what I can mention is that in ideology, you have different practices within Europe and you have different practices between continents. For example, in France, you are paid by the number of sessions. It means that every time the patient comes in and you have a treatment, then you will be paid. And the total cost will be the number of sessions time a reimbursement. In US, for example, you have something different, which is actually you are paid by the whole treatment. So you're getting an amount, whether you are delivering the treatment in five sessions or whether you are delivering the treatment in 30 sessions, you're still getting the same amount. So the reimbursement policies will impact the way people are treated. That's the first one. In radiation therapy, I think I mean, the advantage we have is one of the domains where actually you can only do by software. It's not that we replace human. I mean that we had software before that was not using in syndrome. Maybe it was not perfect. But we had the software that actually was the software allowing physicians to do manual rotation. So people were paying for the software. You were not, they were not paying the same amount of money as they pay for a software that does the annotation automatically. But the software was part of the chain because there was no way of treating the patient without going through the annotation, without going through the simulation, without going through whatever know process. So you still have the software. Now, what you come in, you're coming in with a new software that actually is performing much better than before, at the same time is you using the work. But there is no reimbursement. code, that means there is no reimbursement code for software. So today the the business model we have adopted and it seems to work okay is that, and the other thing for machine learning and AI is that these methods are getting better and better. Before, for example, if you have a semi-annotation tool, there was no upgrade. I mean, you could have had some, you know, fancy, annotation tools, but the software behavior was essentially the same. When we start introducing our product, at the very beginning, we have 50 structures. We were able to create a digital model of the patient with 50 structures. Three years after now, we're able to do 150 structures. The same method, same problem. I'm sure two years from now, we're going to have CTMR, we're going to have PET, we're going to have everything. So this, these are softwares that are constantly improving. Not only with respect to what was the performance of the existing offer, but the offer itself is getting richer and richer. So the work we have adopted as a model is what we call an annual subscription fee. So we're saying we're getting the software. Software is up to N patients. And then based on the usage, you're gonna pay us a fee. Of course, the more you use, the more you pay, but the less you it will cost you the less the patient. That's it. But when you buy the subscription fee, you get everything, you get upgrades, you get updates, you get new models, you get everything. So that's what we have opted at the very beginning, which is kind of a radical with respect to what was happening before. But this is the essence of machine learning. Continuously trained models, as I said before, it's not that we use the data of the hospital to train, but we get feedback. People will tell us, yes, but you know, for example, you had the neck tumor, it's not working that well. And then once we have this feedback, then we have to get more data and every time. So I think the threat is to go through subscription fees. The problem is actually is that it's not a reimbursement model because if there was software before, they were paying for software. The problem is more complicated in places like radiology because in radiology before, the human was the brain- problem. The only thing that the human was needed uh, was for, was a visual nothing else. Now, when you come with a software that will actually go all the way to the end and do the job of the radiologist, then it become more complex. But we don't have that issue in radiation oncology as much as in, in in radiology, but we still have reimbursement approach issue because there is no reimbursement code issue for AI software.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting because in a way, it's very unique that the entire Pipeline of radiation therapy is so much dominated by the software, whereas most of the like physicians are relying on their own judgments for all the decision making.
1: As I said before, I mean, you have to optimize a matrix of 20,000 variables, which each vector has 2,000 variables. So there is no, uh, even if you take the best mathematician, there is no way you can solve analytical problem. And this, then you have to simulate. So I think that's the advantage of radiation therapy of course you have to be sure that the software does the job that's why i said before that in many of the different steps of the treatment you have to use a secondary or independent calculation to be sure that the software does the job and you have to be very careful but i think the future of machine learning will be through subscription models these tools have been has to be have to be considered as a tool that aids the physician to do better job i don't think we're going on the replacement but today for example when we ask, we discuss with the hospitals, what is the impact of our software on their workflow? What they are telling us is that now we have plenty of, you know, uh, uh, medical interns. These are physicians that are doing training, and particip- participating on boards, patient boards. They're discussing real cases. And these people, what they were doing before, they were spending nine hours per day on parodies, or, you know, or breaks. So I mean, it's not that you are replacing somebody. You, you have to, you are giving time back to people so they can actually be better trained and focus on what they have in and this is going to be the case for the audience as
0: well. Yeah, that's really an amazing vision to think about. To let people do the real thinking work, whereas taking out the more monotonous, labor-intensive work that they are currently doing. So I guess one thing that is really very clear from the first time you talked about your Siemens corporate research experience to now the Therapeutic Experience, it's that. You have been successful multiple times in transitioning and translating between academia and industry. Uh,
1: I would not. Uh, I mean, you know, this is a it's a relative judgment of whether I was successful or not. I think that means, uh, as I said before, it's very important, especially for young people, to challenge themselves.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I guess, like, okay, let's say you are doing it for the last three decades. So you have definitely learned the ways to fail and also learn the things that work. So can you give us, or like some of the young early career listeners who are actually thinking about this transition, some uh, recipes of success, what they should be doing?
1: The, the first thing that they should be doing is actually choose the right people. Success is never a question of an individual. When we succeed, we will succeed. When we fail, we all fail. And if you want to be successful, even if you have a great mind, you still need people that actually will be able to work with this great mind, will be able, I'm not saying myself I'm a great mind, but I'm saying is that the most important thing is to work with people that actually share your vision, share your vision, and share your goals. Because if you have great people with who you cannot discuss more than five minutes then whether they're great or not makes no difference. So the first advice I can give is when we start something, try to associate yourself with people that actually will be there for you. You will be there for them with the share values, share vision, and share objectives. This is the first advice. The second advice is spend time on understanding what you would like to do and what is the impact. And do not focus on technology. At the end, what kind of matters Is what is in the the impact on the patient level. If you're able to develop a very, very simple software that is doing a threshold, but actually it saves half an hour of the physician per day, that's huge. As a scientist, what we believe is that technology makes a difference. It's not technology that makes a difference. What makes a difference is being able to address the real needs of physicians. And addressing the real needs of physicians means understanding their problems, understanding their workflow, most of the unsuccessful examples of great innovation is because in the healthcare, it is because it couldn't fit on the workflow. So choose the right people, that's very important. Choose the right problem, not scientifically speaking, but in terms of, you know, what will be the impact in the
2: society. And then be humble, work hard, and do never give up. And at some point, the results will come. Um, my question to you is similar uh, similar to Anja Buns, but going in the opposite direction. So is there something that you learned the hard way that you wished you had known earlier during your transition to the industry? Plenty of things, plenty of things. <laughs> okay, I will, I would will start with a
1: job, which is not a job. At that time, Was I was sure that it was not a job. When we moved from the university, when we started the company, the company is the start-off, the spin-off of the university and the hospital. I was sure that within six months, we are going to have a problem. Why? Because we have published tons of papers on these areas, we have already patents, we have tested our data sets, we're sure that we have great technology. Then you come to the to the company setting, and then you realize that the real world is different because the data you have, they do not come from the best scanners. The practices are very different. So there is a big difference on writing a paper, even if it's a high impact paper, whatever you call it, the natural, natural New England's Journal of Medicine, you can choose whatever journal you like. There's a huge difference between being in a successful academic and building a product that addresses the needs of an average hospital. So what, the, my, my, so what I, I, I didn't do properly is understanding the complexity of the product. What I didn't do properly is understanding the workflow. I will give you an example. We spent two years of actually building our own fantastic web interface. Which I think is a great interface. It's web; you can connect it everywhere. But people in the ecology, they have been using their interface for ten years. Even the interface has limitations. They know how to play with it. They know the shortcomings of the interface, so they can compensate with all the expertise they have. If you ask them to change their practice and start, you know, learning something new from scratch, whether it's great or not, it's something new. So there is a training curve. So what happened then? Ten percent of our customers are using our interface, 90% of our customers, they are using only the computing tool that is pushing the data back to whatever they were using before. Understanding the clinical needs, understanding the workflow is essential. I think that's very important. And the last thing which I didn't do properly is estimate the resources that are needed to deliver a project. As an academic, you are ambitious and you think that everything is easy. That's what academics do. When you come to the reality, Building a solution that addresses all the things I mentioned before requires time and effort. And if you underestimate that, then you put people under pressure. When you put people under pressure, they become productive. When you become productive, even if you can deliver things you don't deliver. So try to balance what you're targeting and what are your resources and be focused. That's the advice that I will give to people that I would have done differently.
0: Yeah, that's really a lot of amazing insights. And I guess it's really helpful for all those of our listeners who are thinking about transitioning from academia to industry. So real world is definitely harder than, than academia for sure. So I guess one thing that, that's also it's sort of interesting uh, way we always finish our podcast is to think about the next five years. And in your case, the main focus is of course, the space of radiation therapy and how to bring in machine learning tools how to standardize how to make things more efficient for the entire uh, workflow so can you give us some insights of where the space is really heading and what are the major success stories that we can expect in the next five years yeah so
1: i uh, i think that's a great question uh, I, w- I will give two separate answers i will focus on the therapy first and i will give you a more you know genetic answer in ecology i think today we are very close, on actually, I mean, the software machines themselves, today in radiation therapy, we have amazing machines, they can do amazing, you have articulated robots, can go everywhere and then send the radiation and target even you know very, very tiny lesions. so hardware is there. What's going to happen in the next five years is going to be a software revolution. It's, this is also what is happening in radiology for the past 10 years. Today, people are not buying scans because they can give you more slices or they can give you better resolution. You have software that can take an image that is done in resolution, can generate something that is fantastic. So I think the future within the next few years will go through full automation, full standardization. That is something that will be offending to everybody. And I think we're going to have a paradigm shift. I think adaptive theory of treatment will become a norm. That means everybody or most of the centers will be using it. But I think we're going to start looking at what I mentioned before, which is local dose control. How instead of making the very, very stupid assumption. One tumor, one dose. It's like same one human, one behavior. The same person under different conditions have different behavior. How we can actually customize the dose? So instead of targeting the whole tumor, now going through the you know specific targeting of the different uh, uh, zones depending on how aggressive they are. That's uh, what's going to happen. That's going to stop happening after five years. So I think the next five years is going to be full automation. It's going to be full standardization, It's going to be adaptive. Treatment. If I look in general oncology and beyond today we're doing what we call experimental medicine. It means that we start the trick. If it doesn't work, we're going to do a second treatment. And then if it doesn't work, we're going to do a third treatment. Okay. The problem is that the outcome of the second treatment is conditional on the first treatment. Right? That means that if I give you an example, if you're going to use immunotherapy, which is the latest trend, if you have done radiotherapy before, the chances of immunotherapy are are getting much lower because you have decreased the level of lymphocytes. I think the future, in general, will be what we call holistic treatment pathways. We start collecting data for that, not here, but in general, I mean, the, the you know the hospitals. So instead of reasoning, okay, let's try to do that, and if it doesn't work, let's do that, and if it doesn't work, let's do that. I think the future will be try to understand what is the best trajectory of the patient throughout the whole treatment journey, and then try to adjust the individual steps. So instead of maximizing the immediate income of a choice you have made. You are maximizing the compositional effect of the treatment pathway. This is going to be the future dimension. And it's going to be also multimodal. Today, we are fragmented. You have the radiologist saying A, you have the pathologist saying B, you have the surgeon saying C. And these people, they are not talking the same language. They are not able to understand that actually the value comes by bringing this information together because this information brings in complementarity. I mean, you have things that you don't see on an individual and you can see them when you bring them together. And that's something that machine learning can, create, can really do, which is not the case for human. So for me, the future would be holistic in the pathways, not in the next five years, but maybe in the next 20 years, and multi-modality, both for treatment diagnosis, treatment implementation, different approaches.
0: Yeah, that seems like an amazing future where it's much more, how to say, computational focus, thinking about the overall pipeline, the trajectory of the patient and... Really, bringing all the information that we are—I don't know—already gathering anyway, but not exactly. We have this
1: information, and then it's used. I mean, everybody's giving advice, but it's not. There is no way of bringing the data together, trying to see what is, you know, correlated, what is not correlated, what is, you know, multimodality is the key. And that's what people are talking a lot about: precision medicine, which means customizing treatment for every patient. Because now the treatment we're doing is for another patient. And we apply the treatment of our experience to everybody. The future of precision medicine go through holistic pathways and go
0: through multimodality. Yeah, and I I wish you all the success, both as an academic as well as the CEO of and Asia. You know,
1: Aniban, the most important thing is to have fun on what we're doing. Not, yeah. not, not 100% of our time, but if you have 20% fun of our time, that would be fantastic. So I, yeah. I, uh, for me, the success is actually do something that you enjoy doing at least up to 20%, because I think 100% is unrealistic. And then have the impression that you're doing something useful. And as I said before, we should challenge ourselves, whether we're academics or whether we're in industry. It's always easier to stick where we are and take no challenges and take no risks. I think taking risks is that what makes a difference.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And on that, I can see really how passionate you are in making these cause and really bringing uh, high quality care to the entire patient experience for oncology i really hope you become successful and initiate together with you really prosper on that and on that note thank you so much for sharing your experience insights to all our listeners i'm sure they learned a lot both about the technical aspects the radiation oncology, the adaptive aspects of it, but also even the more general aspects of thinking beyond academia, beyond the Mikai style research and thinking about how to be useful in the real world. All the best and have a wonderful day, Nikos.
1: Thank you so much for the kind invitation. Of it was a real pleasure discussing with you and participating in this podcast. Have a great day to everybody. Thank you very much for today's session.
2: Bye. That's been very nice.